This is Jessica, and you're listening to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. I'm here today with writer and comedian Guy Branham. Thank you so much for joining me. Good to be here. I'm very happy to, to uh, finally get to meet you. We've been chatting for a little bit, so I'm super thrilled that we finally, our stars aligned, so it, to speak. It's lovely to be here. Uh, in my own home, <laughs> your use of the word chat was the most extreme example of your Chicago accent I have experienced thus far. <laughs> and I, I have to ask, is this picking me up? Yes. Uh, I have to ask if you have watched The Circle on Netflix. I haven't, but I've seen that you've been tweeting about it. I, a lot of people are very excited about it, but um, Bill, who doesn't spend a long time in The Circle... Um, has, has, circle. has a, a really great Chicago accent. Yeah, I never realized I had a Chicago accent until I was in Indiana, and I said the word Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and like to uproarious laughter. I, I really feel like the word Wisconsin is kind of a shibboleth. I lived in Minnesota for a period of time. Oh, that's right. And there is just a, um, a, a broadness that you allow in the Wisconsin. Yeah, that like to this day, I'm never sure exactly how to spell Wisconsin, because that last... Vowel is yeah amalgamous right. Um, so uh, we are here. So today, when in preparation for this interview, I watched like five episodes of Talk Show the Game Show. Thank you. Let me tell you what I love about that show. Thank you. <laughs> um, it is that it is a pretty dumb thing that you all take extremely seriously. Yes, uh, we were before we started recording. We were talking about Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. and I was trying to explain the kind of nerdy that I want out of a Dungeons and Dragons game, uh-huh. and it truly is exemplified by Talk Show, the game show, of taking it very seriously, very seriously, understanding and respecting the rules. And that was one of the, like, one of the cool things about Talk Show, the game show. We should it, probably preface what that was. It, it, it was a show that I created that ran on True TV for two seasons and is now dead. And before Are that they- was a live show that I did for. Um, four or five years. I didn't know it was based on a live show. Yeah, it was really fun. And um, one of the lovely things was we really got to know the show and the rules in the course of the live show. And Casey Schreiner, who was the lead judge on the show, um, was a coworker of mine from uh, G4. And he was someone I knew would take things very seriously. <laughs> I had previously, like a previous incarnation of the show was for years before that, I had had this Hanukkah party where that was a power cord in my house that just fell. Okay. Um, it wasn't the wine. Don't worry, guys. Prior, prior to that, uh, I'd had a, a very involved Hanukkah party that um, involved a small talk competition where he was the, the judge of the small talk competition, the lead judge, and he took it very seriously and was exacting with people. Um, and it was a style of comedy I love so much. And like, Talk Show the Game Show is that rare comedy show that began with 12 pages of rules being typed out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, it's such a joy. And he is so extremely serious about it. And yeah. like the, the bell is such a good touch of him. So basically anytime somebody in this talk show says something that one is expected to say at a talk show, you get a point. So name yeah. dropping, bringing alcohol, bringing a gift for the host. Right. Um, and so you get you hear a little ding like name drop, two points, whatever. And yeah. it's. Such a joy. And then they give a very serious breakdown of like, here's what you did wrong. You came out without a gift for the host. That was extremely poor taste. <laughs> like, and, well, and there were, would always be people who came and tried to just play the rules as hard as they could with mm-hmm. no style behind mm-hmm. it. And, you know, that was not what you were looking for. And speaking of uh, the circle on uh, <laughs> Netflix, 
uh, its host, Michelle Buteau, was like the first person we ever had who came out who legitimately had no idea what was going on oh, uh-huh. and scored more points than anybody else. <laughs> Tiffany Haddish had a very similar experience. Tiffany Haddish is incredible. Because it really is something that is like, it is not a game that you are just playing. It is an observation of talk show quality. Uh-huh. So any quality talk show appearance will be a crushing performance <laughs> at talk show, the game show. I, I miss it a lot. I, since the show got canceled, we haven't done it, but then we did it live in, um, there's like a weekend for Jews at Christmas time in Palm Springs that my friend Louie books comedy for. And fun. we did it there and it was really fun. I love that. Um, so I actually literally had like Karen and Casey in my notes because they are such good judges and they took it so extremely seriously. Yes. This is very important to me. Also, one thing I did find mildly offensive is that in one of your like goof gifts, you gave away a year subscription to Horse Illustrated. And I did subscribe to that for about 10 <laughs> years. I read it very much. I <laughs> They had like at the end, they have confirmation tests. So they have three pictures of horses yes. and you have to decide like which has the best confirmation. I was terrible at it, but I did, I used to work on a ranch. That's really funny. We did that every week and I lost every time. Uh, like the, a thing people don't think about is when it comes to something like a magazine, there are a huge number of rights issues to being able to show that. And this, it, this was the second season I know distinctly because Casey Schreiner, it was his idea, <laughs> a, a subscription to horse magazine. He thought it was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> And then we had this lovely associate producer, I forget her name, but she spent a month trying to get clearance for Horse Magazine. And when we. It was Horse Illustrated, please. Horse Illustrated. respect. When when we finally got, um, like, look, I am a gun and garden man. That's not true. That's not true. The, the lifestyle magazines that I was raised with are very much Sunset Magazine and Southern Living Magazine. I don't know what Sunset Magazine is. Oh, it's a very West Coast thing. Oh, okay. Um, it is basically a lifestyle magazine that tries to tell you about the best possible life you could live if you lived within like an hour and a half of San Francisco. Uh-huh. Um, and in the back are ads for military schools you can send your problematic son to. <laughs> That's pretty good. They get their audience, I think. They get their audience. Yeah. 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 It's like these people love wood paneling and have not parented their children. <laughs> a lot of market research went yes. into finding exactly. They're like shiplap, military schools. Yes. Um, so I listened to your book uh, last year. I listened to the book on tape when I was driving uh-huh. down to Kentucky. Yes. Uh, as one does. It's um, a book with a lot of deities in it for an atheism podcast. You have to be... <laughs> Well, I have a Greek mythology tattoo. Oh, nice. Yeah, this is my, uh, my Artemis tattoo yes. um, slash angry feminist tattoo. It's, That's lovely. It's got many, many meetings. I actually, I reread the first chapter today because uh-huh. I was trying to remember what, what you talked about. What is it with like dorky, lonely kids and Greek mythology? Because also that was my whole jam. Um, I think it is just so nicely organized. Like it's a mixture of fantasy with organization and discipline and order um, that is very appealing. That isn't... That says a lot about how you were as a kid. Yeah. I I would like to break outside of the boundaries of reality, but within a system, thank you very much. No chaos for me. And it's always interesting to deal with those kids who were like dorks of a different flavor, Mm -hmm. who really did like chaos because uh, yeah. that unsettled me. Yeah, I, I was a, a Greek mythology slash Andrew Lloyd Webber dork. Those yes. are my specific flavors. Speaking of which, tell me you've seen Cats. 
Of course, I've seen cats. Can you tell me all of your thoughts? Because I have so many of them and nobody should digest them with because well, nobody would see, that, see it with me. First, I need to say, um, <laughs> during the all of the previews that I, I saw for them, I saw it with a bunch of gay guys. Um, and all of the previews were for movies about creatures in the uncanny valley. Like all of them were like humans and semi-animated creatures. And I forget what all of them were, but I do know that Dr. Doolittle was in there Correct. because my friend, the amazing television writer, Chris Schleicher, uh, halfway through the trailer leaned over into my ear and said, January, when the good movies come out. (laughs) And I loved that. Uh, the me. thing about the thing is, is I did not. First of all, I am a West Coast gay, so my relationship to musical theater is entirely cast albums. And um, okay, same. You know, it's it's not like we were going down to San Francisco and seeing touring companies or anything. Sure. Um, and also, I have pretty much gone to the things that I love, and so my relationship to Andrew Lloyd Webber is relatively distanced because a lot of his stuff. I'm not a huge fan of. It's, I mean, pretty much just Evita is the um, you know the one sure. that means a lot to me. Uh, so I really didn't understand what Cats was. I just knew it was now and forever. I knew it was the Winter Garden Theater. Um, and some people who have an intense relationship with it, like I believe at one point in time, Julie Klausner did say it is just cats introducing themselves. Okay, yes, because that was my when all the weird criticism of it came out. I was kind of living in this weird liminal space of I lo- I own the 1998 DVD. Um, version of Cats mm-hmm. and love it and watch it frequently when I was in high school and slash or junior high I taught myself the dances to it in my basement but the thing is, is it is so specifically of its time correct in that like most, actually most of my knowledge of Cats comes from things referencing people being in Cats like are you familiar with the movie Jeffrey no. Uh, Jeffrey was a gay romantic comedy from the three years that we made J- uh, gay romantic comedies in the late 90s. It's based on a Paul Rudnick play, but there's a character in it who is a cat in, who's like in Plays the ensemble cat? of cats. Um, and it was just sort of like a cliche of gay guy job. Uh-huh. And also those costumes and those movements are so specifically of the time. Yes. And I think... Within that, there is like a richness and beauty to be like, this is what we thought dancing was. Well, and it's coming back to like the earnestness of it, like you can't half-ass cats. Like you have to go in like full flesh. Well, I feel like so much of the mistake was having like names in it that meant that like, uh, is her name Rumor? What? Is, no. Um, oh, Rebel Wilson? Rebel Wilson is not going to give you cat dancing like you know like poor oh, old oh, Ian, I see what you Ian mean. McKellen yes. is not going to give you like early 80s like, I 100% dance. agree because to me one of the best parts of the movie was the guy who played Strap, who's like the the gray kind of yes caretaker cat and he and Skimbleshanks and the Victoria were the only three triple threats in that yeah. entire musical and it's cats like Dancing is a big part of it. So if you can't also dance, you're just walking around in like a CGI cat outfit. Like um, the, the, the imprecision of the perspective was really great. Like I personally, I love Julie and Julia because Uh they are trying to Lord of the Rings, Meryl Streep at all times to make her look gigantic. Like I (laughs) enjoy that. And it was just such a 
weird world that they were putting us uh-huh. into. The thing is, it's like I loved watching cats. There was never Every a time watching that that I wasn't thrilled by what was in front of my face. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the problem. So I had gone in with my my friend and sometimes guest host Anne. She had finally texted me. Nobody would go with me. She texted me and she goes, do you want to take an edible and go see cats? I was like, fucking finally, somebody gets yes. my brand. Um, so we did. And I was planning on going straight home afterwards. And I was like, and we need to go to a bar and talk about this for a while. Mm-hmm. And we did. And I, I think the problem was they CGI'd way too hard. <laughs> like, I think if they had gone with just costumes and maybe CGI'd some ears and tails it would have been a little bit better. I just think... Well, I I also think, like, behaving as though this is about cats is bizarre. Like, the thing is, is that... I mean, it's a bizarre movie. Like, there's nothing not bizarre But but also, the musical isn't about cats. The musical is about T.S. Eliot's weird interpretation of Mm -hmm. cats. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you had leaned into the idea of, like... The poems are an adaptation of the animals, mm-hmm. and the musical is an adaptation of the poems. Right. And this movie is an adaptation of that musical. That would have, and just leaned into that. But in, like, I don't know what we were supposed to be getting out of this. Well, I just think Tom Hooper was such a strange choice because he did such a great job with Les Mis because Les Mis is gritty and like you can like get yeah. into their faces. This is not that. This is like a silly, frivolous musical that's about the spectacle of dancing. I want to see Guillermo del Toro's cats. <laughs> Nightmare fuel. Um, <laughs> like, I I just feel like, yeah, like, Tom Hooper does historical epics, and uh-huh. when you are layering music on top of historical epic, fine. Uh-huh. Um, but Cats is a costume shit show. Yes. And I feel like you should have gone to a distributor of costume shit shows. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um... Tim Burton's cats, Guillermo del Toro's cats. Any of these would have made me really, really happy. Yes. It was, and it's weird because you realize, like, I've been so inoculated in this, inoculated into this weird world of cats that I'm kind of okay. And then watching it, and all of a sudden, everybody's like walking around. All of a sudden, Jennifer Hudson starts crawling on the ground. Yeah. I lost my entire mind. And then there was one part that, Judy Dench, when she was like Dame Judy Dench, yes. when she's laying in her little cat bed and something happens and all of a sudden she like devilapays her leg up here, my bones left my body. <laughs> well, there were always moments, there were definite moments where I was like, will Sir Ian McKellen be able to maintain his dignity? Will he get is through this? Is this it for him? But, I mean, but the thing is, this is also like, is this a campy enough faggot that he'll be able to like make this out clean just by being like, imagine, look what I did. And like, the answer was no. I like that he got onset time. And also, there's just the whole world of, like, anytime anyone is performing entirely in green screen Mm -hmm. with, um, you know, uh, like, ping pong balls attached to them, it's just, I don't know what anyone's expecting out of us. No. But I just want to say, back to my point of Guillermo del Toro, um, Cats. Ron Silver as McCavity. Such a wild idea. Ron Silver as McCavity? Yeah, I'm just saying, like, take the cast of Hellboy and then just repurpose them. Um, for cats, and I wouldn't hate it. Uh, yeah. I so deeply wanted to, I thought I was gonna, like, not ironically enjoy it, like, actually enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Idris Elba said, magic! And I was like, well, that's fucking it for me. I mean... This is it, where I'm gonna die. It was amazing. And I did love <laughs> that it had 
its inconsistencies reminded me of Disneyland. You know, it was just like, what space are we in? What's going on? Or like when they're on the train track and they were three inches tall. And yes. like, what cat is that? Or like, on, or when we were on the boat, I was just like, <laughs> um, so I loved it so much. Um, also, uh, my dear friend, Matt Rogers, host of the Lost Culturistas podcast, mm-hmm. he came with the strong assertion that memories should be the biggest thing that a white woman has done. And uh, I, Jennifer Hudson, like Jennifer, that rug out. like Jennifer Hudson, um, it, because we have seen so much from her, mm-hmm. it never felt huge. And um, it, it did make me long for a Betty Buckley and Elaine. Yeah, and Elaine Page would have, like an aged actress, I think, would have been a nice... I mean, yeah, like I just, I didn't feel the desperation f- from her. And, and like, I really feel that we didn't need to have fluids leaving her nose at all times. That was a lot for me to do. And I kept trying to tell myself it's just her tears running down her nose, but I don't think it was. I mean, I had to wonder whether it was feline distemper. <laughs> like, is this a situation that could have just been solved with some immunizations? <laughs> you hate to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So cats, Greek mythology, big things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, let's kind of dig into sort of what comedy looks like in a post-2016 world. Because that's like a fun, cool, light, neat topic. It is. I don't know how to do it anymore. I feel like a lot of people don't know how to do it anymore. And it's it's funny, as somebody who, you know, I did, like, open mics and showcases and stuff like that. I was never, like, uh-huh. I earned $20 once for opening for my friend's magic show. That's, like, the extent of my... Feels good, though. Feels good to make money from it. I left that show. I bombed, because there was uh-huh. five people in the audience. I left the show, drank in the back of the theater, and as the audience was leaving, a girl, a woman put her hand on my shoulder and said, comedy's really hard. <laughs> that was, That's what you want to hear after It was a pretty a low moment in my life. Um, yes. But all that's to say is, so I'm very much a comedy outsider. I listen to a ton of podcasts. I watch a lot of comedy. And it just felt to me that there is this fundamental change in 2016 between what comedy was and what it, the space it occupies now. I don't have a good answer for it, but I have thought about it a lot. And my thoughts are, um, we spent so long thinking that scoffing was a political tool that we came to a point where um, scoffing was powerful, like powerless, and mm. we we got an unscoffable, an unscoffable person. But beyond that, I think um, tearing at America's institutions used to feel like it was punching up, and now they do not feel healthy. It, like yeah. it, it is like talking about politics at all. shitting on it it used to be like this is a strong thing that could do better Mm -hmm. and now it doesn't feel like a strong thing that you are going after and I feel like it's a little hard because talking about anything that matters is delicate business and Uh talking about anything that um, doesn't matter feels frivolous and if anyone like being in a situation where you have an audience that is too much like you don't want to just be reserving people what they already know and already mm-hmm. have. And mm-hmm. so much of what Twitter is doing is really just serving up to people what they already believe in a slightly, slightly shinier form. <sighs> yeah. And uh, there are no good answers. So let's drink more. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you, so what I think is interesting is what, what we're living in is not necessarily the first time it 
seems like the country is kind of falling apart for a specific group of people. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, if Twitter was around like during the AIDS crisis in the 80s, do you think we would see a similar thing of a shift in tone of like, okay, things aren't fun right now. We're, we don't, fun is later. Ab- absolutely. Though I do think, I mean, so resiliently those dudes did have fun, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, Jeffrey, the, uh, the movie I was telling you about earlier uh-huh. that has like a cat's character in it, uh-huh. uh, is a rom-com about being HIV positive, oh. um, that was written in the nineties by Paul Rudnick. Um, and you know, like the musical, like there's always that argument within the gay community of all the good ones died Mm. of like everyone who was cool in 1983 died horribly. And it was only the boring people (laughs) in stable relationships who survived. But then there's also the way that like it did force something out like angels in America Mm -hmm. or even, are you familiar with falsettos? No. Okay. So falsettos was this series of one act musicals that this dude had been doing that came out in 77, 79, and then 81, 82. Uh, and things had to change between, maybe it was a little later than that. I mean, the thing is, is like, f- when they were one acts, the first two came out before there was AIDS. Mm. And then the last one came out and there's AIDS. And they ended up merging the last two of them and turning them into a show that played on Broadway in like the 92 season. Um, but it is like this magical domestic musical about being in love that also has to wrestle with this gigantic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like there is a dangerous way that the successes that we have had on various fronts make us want institutional validation for things mm-hmm. um, that used to be where that used to have unofficial discourse that was allowed to be a lot messier and more fun, you know, like, I would say that those guys in the 80s who were dealing with the AIDS crisis understood they were never going to be right, uh-huh. you know? And, and we're, we're now in an America where, like, um, Pete Buttigieg is rem- asking for the dancer pole to be removed from the, the gay bar that he's, you know, doing a fundraiser in. And, uh, like, I do feel like there are some things we have to accept Mm-hmm. are not going to be correct. Yeah. You know? That actually, I wanted to, to talk about Pete Buttigieg because he's living, he's occupying such an interesting space in this electorate. It's true. I think it is uh, trite and easy to just shit on him and dismiss him. He is doing the hard work of being the first gay, like, he's doing the hard work of being the first gay person taken seriously in mm-hmm. national politics. He is coming from a situation of we were systematically excluded from electoral politics Mm -hmm. for such a long time. And I also think that we don't, aren't aware of the dangers of discourse around queer men in politics. And I Mm -hmm. think they are different from the ones with women, but just sort of like understanding the ways that our origin story impacts the way that we're going to behave. Mm -hmm. That said, he's, trying so hard to not be dangerous mm-hmm. or um, to give people what they want in a way that just, like, makes a lot of sense to 
a lot of gay people, like, we, we understand people uh, being, like, that. Aiming to please. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it, like, it, it's not the answer. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that really weird question of what do we expect from our politicians? Because yep. I, I feel like we've been able to see over the course of the past three electoral cycles or four electoral cycles and never before mm-hmm. the ways that what women give is never seen as adequate and authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am thinking of a couple of weeks ago, there was some random video of Elizabeth Warren dancing and she's just like a dorky dancer because she's a white mm-hmm. lady in her 60s. Like, of course she's a yes. dorky dancer. And like, there was just this sort of like venom that came after that of... But I mean, the wonderful thing about Liz is like, there's just so much authenticity in what she does where like you can say it's dorky, but you also get that that's her. But I th- I feel like people were calling her out for... Like, when I hear a lot of talk about her being inauthentic because... She used to be a Republican or she like has a capitalism ish background. Mm-hmm. And I, I I always think there's a danger in not allowing people to change. Yeah. Well, I mean, that to me is one of the interesting things about our time. I think so much of what's wrong with America just comes back to all civil rights movies made between 1955 and present. <laughs> because they are always like stories for white people about a white person trying to sort of convince you you would have been one of the good white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe in 1955, trying to get more white people to be one of the good white people was a good thing to do. But yeah. now it feels like it is, you know, something like the helper driving Miss Daisy is, uh-huh. you know, gently patting people on the back. Um, and it doesn't leave space for change and mm-hmm. understanding that the world, like we are taught to believe in like the arc of justice bends inexorably or the arc of history bends in, uh, inevitably towards justice mm-hmm. inexorably, whatever. Um, <laughs> and it's work and it takes people changing. And it's why I would infinitely rather have Kirsten Dunst in, um, uh, hidden figures being an asshole who mm-hmm. becomes slightly less of an asshole mm-hmm. And that's how things change than just sort of behaving as though there was always an Emma Stone and her writing her feelings while never actually dealing with black women as human beings is what changed things. Yeah, it's it's so exhausting. And especially when you see um, what one less uh, green book, green book. Thank you. Um, Which, by the way, there's a 99 percent invisible episode about like the actual history of the green book, which is an incredible, incredible right. um, uh, story. I didn't see uh, the book. Also, be- Dr. John, uh, Dr. John Shirley is a great and wonderful story. I wish that movie had in some way been about him. You know? Yeah, I, so I, I didn't see that movie specifically because I was like, I don't, I'm kind of over white saviors. Like yeah. I don't want to support that. And I, my husband and I have had a lot of talks about like voting with our money and trying to see movies that aren't meant for us, but we want to, see made and therefore we should go support it in the theater. And that was like the opposite of like, no, we have enough of that. Well, I mean, the thing you were talking about before when it comes to sort of like comedy after 2016 is like a lot of the need for correctness that we have just comes down to some things are being like, aren't getting a lot of airtime. And Mm -hmm. so when they do, there's this pressure for everything to be right and correct and not problematic in any way. And it's yeah. something that makes you, like, it's better to live in a world that has both Black Lady Sketch Show and the Astronomy Club. Mm-hmm. You know, it's better to have more voices coming from different directions 
um, so that you know we can get a multiplicity of perspectives. Because one of the things that stand up that I love is when you someone is on stage, their perspective is everything. You know, mm-hmm. like it is an art form that is about perspective, and it's just nice when you get different kinds of perspectives mm-hmm. because for such a long history, it has just been the same kinds of people getting to talk. Yeah. And I, and I just brought this up the other day, the first time I saw Ladybird, uh-huh. which is it like, I'm 34 now. And I think that took place in like 2002 or something. So uh-huh. it was when I, it was a movie about like a young white girl in high school at the time I was in high school and I left that theater realizing, oh, I had never, literally never seen a story besides like Bring It On or like one of those. I've never seen like a kind of coming of age story that was about literally somebody who could have been me. It was very interesting for me as well because that is essentially the place that I am from. Oh, Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. And there were ways that she touched on the interesting placelessness of Sacramento. Like, the the danger that her mother identified in trying uh-huh. or aspiring to be something outside of that world uh-huh. um, was just so beautiful and something I didn't understand until I read Didion. And, like, ha- knowing what Joan Didion means to Greta Gerwig, uh-huh. like, getting to watch that movie was lovely. It was... That movie was a really lovely thing because... Um, my my family doesn't always have the best like inclinations to understand my life and world and i really wanted my mom to see that and my niece to see that to be like this is the place that we're th- from uh-huh. think think about it and all three of us enjoyed it so much we, and it's also very funny that we had to see it in san francisco because <laughs> it barely played in sacramento oh, it, um, that's so funny yes but you know my niece was you know, 17-year-old girl who likes drama too much and mm-hmm. uh, hates her mother figure. and <laughs> Who among it, us? <laughs> yeah, it was really lovely. Yeah, it was so, genuinely the part when they were laying in their car after she tried to kiss the gay drama boy. Yeah. And loudly singing Crash Into Me by Dave Matthews was like, t- too real. <laughs> have, have you seen Little Women? Yes. I, so, I went into that, again, that was our, like, Christmas movie that uh-huh. I went to with my mom and my niece and I was expecting it to be a nice reiteration of a story I had seen before. Uh-huh. And, like, the big swings that she takes with that screenplay, I respect so much. I enjoyed that movie so much and saw a story in a new way. It, the authenticity with, with how we saw, and I don't have sisters, but I have a lot of, like, girlfriends that I kind of grew up with and this sort of way they all like physically and verbally kind of tumbled over each other constantly and it was messy and like everybody's talking at the same time and like being goobers like it there's a scene I don't remember it there so they're all up in the attic and they're all doing these like British accents and they have their their canes (laughs) it was just this wonderful like authentic just teenagers being goobers and like goofing around and and the the emotion was so bare for me and so yeah. real. Well, also a moment them specifically doing that is like seeing masculinity be parodied uh-huh. in a way that doesn't get shown in stories that are about men or women and men. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think I feel like the biggest thing I've learned in the last few years is just to sort of like reexamine masculinity and what it 
is and what it's supposed to be and what it can be. Well, the mind fuck that everything we've been seeing forever presumes it as the perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, yeah. It, like, it's hard to pull yourself out of thinking, I am a supporting character uh-huh. in somebody else's story. Yeah, and when... And again, going back to like the Ladybird thing of like, oh, that's my story that I was told. But you know, my husband's a forty-year-old straight white guy. Every movie he's seen is well, literally his story of growing up in the nineties is like a disaffected skater boy. Kumail has the best line, which is, "I know that people can." The Kumail Nanjiani, like, mm-hmm. I know that people can get used to looking through my eyes in a movie because I've had to spend my life looking through theirs. Yeah. You know, and it's it's so bizarre to consider that I have only ever, like he said, I've only ever seen stories mostly through somebody who wasn't me. And so it's a very comfortable thing. And so to see something that is about me is thrilling. And then my second thought is like, Oh, what have I been missing? Like what Mm -hmm. stories have been told and not to say, you know, like my childhood in the Chicago suburbs as a drama nerd who liked Greek mythology and didn't have many friends. Like that's not necessarily a more compelling story than anything else, but how many versions of that have we seen about dudes? Yep. Like I was, I think of, cause I just want today, um, my husband and I watched, uh, uh, book smart, mm-hmm. which was, have you seen it? Yeah, it was fun. I liked it. I, yeah. I very much enjoyed it. Um, and I was like, Oh, I've never seen something like this, but I've seen 15 super bads, yeah. which is also, I loved that movie in, in college. Well, also it would be nice at some point in time if we could like not make super bad book girls and not make ghostbusters, but girls, Yes, you know? And the Correct. thing is, it's like, um, this is a way of opening up the door, but I think that there are ways that in trying to make super bad, but girls, mm-hmm. uh, it's not always a great fit. You know? Yeah, and I thought there was a lot of I, I, I thought it was I thought it was funny. It yeah. wasn't as funny as I wanted it to be, you know? So what I really loved and it honestly it hearkened more for my female relationships now than even in high school of this like enthusiastic love these two girls had for each other. Yeah. Cause to me like I feel like you hear stories all the time about women and they're always sniping at each other, competitive yes. or whatever. And for my friendships, like my close group we're much more like that of just like spending 10 minutes saying how fucking dare you be so gorgeous. Like, I mean, it like, <laughs> uh, it's why broad city. It like yes. is so good because like the way that <laughs> those two characters have this like deep love for each other mm-hmm. that is two steps further than we've ever seen in mm-hmm. something before yeah. that is on a lot of part almost erotic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> is like so delicious and so satisfying uh-huh. And I, I, like, it's why you look at Clueless, Mm -hmm. which is taking a woman's story from 200 years ago Mm -hmm. and updating it, but it's still a woman's story. I feel like there's so much, like, pleasure and authenticity in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And Booksmart, the thing is, is, like, maybe I just put too much weight on it because I wanted it to be so good. And I also do love that idea of... For me, there is something deeply relevant about the whole, like, I have been working so hard. I have not had fun. Mm-hmm. What is fun now? Yeah. And there are ways that Booksmart, to me, always felt like it was trying to be super bad, but girls. Um, yeah. And I I see that. But also, 
I see that, but I also don't. It doesn't bother me that yes, much. Something I, is better than nothing. And, right. And it was good. I'm not like I should not be speaking so critically of it. No, no, it's fine. But I, I don't know. I when the Oscars came out, the Oscar nominations came out this year. I was just like disappointed in a way. Like I don't. It's just going to be a boring Oscars. We all know who's going to win everything right mm-hmm. now, and like. Think about how different an evening it would have been if Aquafina had just gotten to go with a possibility instead of, you know, like does Scarlett Johansson really need two nominations for like performances that are, you know, she's very good in Marriage Story and mm-hmm. Jojo Rabbit is fine. I loved Jojo Rabbit. Really? I, my husband literally saw it today, like because I was coming to this. He's like, oh, I guess we'll go see yes. Jojo Rabbit again. Why did you love Jojo Rabbit? There was a, an earnestness about it that I really, really liked. That, That's interesting. Yes, because I did say I'm weird about earnestness. But the, this kid's, like, willing to dive in with two feet. And because it's so... The, Rabbit, idea of, the idea of you live in the world that you are trained to live in and mm-hmm. you don't question it and growing up, like, is about realizing there's yes. a Jew in the closet. <laughs> it's a metaphorical Jew in the closet. Yeah. The... Like, and the dynamic between the two little boys, there's one line that the little kid with glasses said, oh, it's a real hard time to be a Nazi. Genuinely is my favorite line reading of anything this That boy year. is an amazing performer, and I love him deeply. He, I would adopt him in a heartbeat if he would have me. I don't know that that movie had anything to say, and other than, like, prejudice is bad. And um, it, it felt more like a reflection of... Ha ha! Like just sort of a look at us. We're doing a, a comedy about the Holocaust. Where to me, there there is this very Jewish tradition of making movies that are like truly problematic and like challenging about mm-hmm. how like how do we feel about this like. Uh, are you familiar with Enemies a Love Story? No, I'm so sorry. I've not known oh. any of your references. I'm doing okay. my best. <laughs> Enemies a Love Story is a delicious late 80s movie based on a... Um, uh, I was also born in 1985, so like... Yes. <laughs> it's based on a short story by one of our great Yiddish uh, writers, but it's basically man um, whose wife died in the Holocaust is married to um, a... Sorry, I'm pouring He's wine. He's filling me up. It's he, important. He's married to a Gentile Polish woman in Brooklyn, and he's cheating on her with a different woman, and then his dead wife shows up at the door. <laughs> and it's like all, it's like all the... Oh my God. And then it's like the three women getting back at him for being a cheat. And it's like something like that that's really good, or like, um, you know, Vert Mueller's Seven Beauties, mm-hmm. where you have, which is not about Jews, but is about World War II, where you have a dude who's basically like surviving in concentration camps by fucking ladies. And... <laughs> You know, when you have something that really is sort of getting at the idea that it is this place of, like, complete moral confusion, I just thought that there was something very clean and simple about Jojo Rabbit. Can I posit that it is a good story for this time? And granted, I feel like generally anytime I see a movie that, like, quote, unquote, people should see, the people who should see it are not seeing it. Yeah. But to to see a kid who believes in something with such a childlike earnestness that you can yeah. only get from a nine-year-old. Yeah. And to know that what he believes is... Monstrous. Monstrous. Yeah. And to see a kid of that age absorbing 
everything he knew in his life as evil. Yeah. And and I don't know if just that that's kind of what I saw it as. It's well, like No, there is something to that and if like we should digest it better from our own perspective. There was this moment um my dad grew up between San Francisco and uh, Arkansas, Missouri. And when he was telling me a story about going to school, when I was like, I think it was like 12 or 13 before I was like, did you go to segregated schools? (gasps) And he was like, well, yeah. (laughs) And um, just sort of like, no, that's like, you know, we never talk about that being within the texture of like, our not so distant past. Yeah, it, it's it's so alarming how recent it was and how quickly we forgot. Well, there's just this this inclination to pretend like everything's fine, which um, I think is one of the things that has bothered me about the discourse around Buttigieg is mm-hmm. like articles in Slate about how, well, being a white gay guy isn't really a problem for anyone, and it's like you're it, you know he entered the military like less than a year after he was legally allowed to enter mm-hmm. the military. I realize it was closeted at the time, but it's not like he, you know, he knew who he was. Right. And just like, just sort of pretending that no one was impacted by the shittiness that was happening six years ago. Yeah, and I wonder if it's because Buttigieg really comes across as like cookie cutter, like straight-laced kid from India. Like just, he, he presents as very... He, he is, and I like... There's something really there's something really challenging about the fact that he thought he could go back. That I think is very challenging to many coastal gay guys. Okay. Um, How do you mean? He's always presented in terms of arrogance. Why is this man who is just the two-term mayor of a small city running for president. Mm -hmm. And for somebody who is so by the book, there is like a tremendous arrogance in doing that. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous arrogance in going back. Most of us are not from places like... I see what you mean. Like, and the thing is, is we interpret it as the natural order of things. Gay guys live in cities. They Mm -hmm. like it there. There are arts and wonderful things. Absolutely. To me, it is... Weird, like I, I, I don't understand wanting to be a gay man when you have to travel two hours to Chicago to go to a decent gay bar and all of the stuff that goes along with that. But I also think that there is something beautiful about the fact that that man thought I don't get to have a relationship to the place that I'm from. The place that I'm from doesn't want to have a relationship with me. Mm-hmm. Um, like my. When when my book came out, there was a, a nice Jewish girl who was working at the paper in my hometown who finally, like, interviewed me and was like, what's it like being from Yuba City? Blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, is that most of my town doesn't want me. And it is neat and interesting to me. I think it is reflective of good and bad things about Pete Buttigieg that when he... Graduated, and I mean, I like. I guess he. I don't know where he lived when he worked at McKinsey, but mm-hmm. that, but that he thought, 
Indiana, a state that does not want him. And, like, it, it does piss me off that people aren't respecting the fact that, like, this state was passing laws he about... He was in Mike Pence's Indiana. Yeah, this state was passing laws about how it didn't want him. And he chose to be there. And mm-hmm. I think that it is easy to see him in terms of, oh, you had so much privileging, privilege protecting you. But he made the choice to go there. And I remember one of my early, like, jobs in stand-up was going to host the gay pride celebration in Vallejo, California, which is still much more urban than where I grew up. Mm-hmm. But just sort of going from pride, you know, you're used to, I'm used to prides in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Palm Springs and these very sort of like professional gay male places. Mm-hmm. And going to a place where the gay people there are lesbians with children, you know? Like <laughs> where are people who are living on a fixed enough income that you not having legal relationship rights is an issue. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's a really good book called, I think, Gentrification of the Mind. Okay. Um, by a woman named Sarah Shulman um, that talks about the AIDS crisis. And, like, it's basically a book about how Pete Buttigieg happened, about <laughs> how the AIDS crisis made us scared of talking about dangerous things. But one of the things it talks about is gentrification in large cities being accelerated by gay guys dying and their partner being kicked out of the red control department. Oh my God. Um, Because through the AIDS crisis, you know, it was like so frequently you ended up with people who were not on a lease together and in a relationship Uh where if they were married, it would have meant something. Sure. Or just like, you know, just like, um, people not having proper end of life documents mm-hmm. to be able to like give something to their partner as opposed to their children or whatever. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I, I, it is very interesting to me that he chose to go back to that place, mm-hmm. and it is an act. Um, that I consider foolish and brave. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I went to col- to college in Indiana, and in mm-hmm. like where uh, Muncie, Indiana, Ball State University. Oh, okay. Chirp, chirp. Yes. Go Cards. Um, and Letterman's. Um, that's uh, correct. Alma mater. We uh, we put up a building for Letterman my senior year and allowed me to walk from the cafeteria to the English building without going outside. So I mean, thank you, David Letterman. The Midwest is all about tunnels, isn't it? Yes. It is. How little can I go outside? Yes. And it's, which I, by the way, it's January in LA and it is 57 degrees. It's, and the number of people I've it's seen cold in, here. It, this in is a, full on winter gear yeah. is uncomfortable for me. Well, one of the exciting things about the, the Los Angeles year our seasons are defined so much more by television and film production than <laughs> by the weather. But um, when the Oscar, the three weeks that the Oscar movies have their premieres mm-hmm. is when every producer gets to layer. It's like when everybody gets to wear their top coat and stuff I and it's do hilarious. I think that. Like, I feel like everybody has like sweaters in their closet and they get to wear one week a year and they're yeah. like, can't fucking wait. Got that like cool scarf I got. Yeah. <laughs> um, all that's to say is I left Indiana as quickly as possible. Um, and I moved immediately, um, from Indiana to, uh, a place called Darby, Montana, uh, which is a town of 400 people. It's one of the States I've never been to. 
Montana's beautiful. Um, Missoula is actually a really dope city. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fun. It's like a college town. And so I was like 90 miles south of Missoula. Yeah. Um, and I, it was like, I worked on a ranch out there. So that was like mm-hmm. the big thing. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot. So this was, I graduated in 2008 and moved out there right then and was very much like, in, in most respects, a very safe person to go out there. Like I'm mm-hmm. straight and white. I'm a woman and I was 22 and most women my age were married out there. So that made me an anomaly. But um, I think about if I graduated in 2018, would I have packed my car and moved to a town of 400 people in the middle of fucking nowhere, Montana. Why did you move to a town of 400 people? Uh, I got a job on a ranch. I, I work with I worked with horses and led horseback rides. The hubris of 22-year-olds is a powerful, powerful thing. That's a good point. And I did pack up a Mini Cooper to drive to Montana, <laughs> which, is, which is a lot. And, but I think about that of... When we talk about gentrification, we talk about the, the divisiveness, the division in the country... I don't understand how that can go away because, like, as a liberal person or as a, you know, as a gay person or as a black person, like, do you want to be the one person to go into South Bend, Indiana and be the one black kid in your school? I'm always, like, I so respect the work that these people are doing and, dear God, I don't want to have to do it. Yeah. You know, I I don't want to have to have those conversations. Like, in the limited experience I've had trying to sort of, like, reach out to people who I went to high school with and, you know, when it was a conversation and a legal question, be like, this is what gay marriage means to me. Mm-hmm. They didn't give a shit. And, like, I'm sure if I were living there, it would be a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think, like, you know, clearly the way that Mr. Buttigieg is fucked up re- requires a different kind of validation than me. Because, like... Yeah. I am also hunting for validation. I sure am getting on those TV shows. Yeah. Um, I went on a horseback ride, and the guy told me I was a really good rider, and I've been, like, dining. I was a professional horseback rider. A stranger telling me I looked really comfortable on a horse. I was like, guess what, everybody? I finally made it. It's all you want. Last year, I recorded um, a show where comedians dance, and I ended up, like, fucking up my arm, and I still have to have surgery about it. Oh, my God. But one of the ladies was like, you should do Broadway. I was like... No, I shouldn't, but I am so, like, pleased that you said that. And it was not, she was not saying I was a good dancer. She was just like, you have, she was like. You You pizzazz. She was basically saying I have pizzazz. And I was like, all I want is fucking Broadway dancers to tell me I have pizzazz. I was on the phone with my best friend who was also, I I was a dance minor at Ball State University. And my best friend and I met because she. Wonderful. Yes. uh, Incomplete, but still. 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 Um, but she and I were the only English major in dance minors at Boston yes. University, obviously. We're still best friends. Um, we were talking. I was walking around Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and she had called me. And so we were just yelling about cats as I walked around Hollywood, uh, which is, I think, how they would all want to yes, be honored. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but we got to talking about how we both do yoga now. And all we want is for the teacher to be like, wow, Jess, you did a really good job. Mm-hmm. To the point of the other day, I ate shit so hard in yoga class that my teacher came over to me afterwards and was like, are you okay? Like, uh, that was funny. really loud. And then she, she was like, I was worried about you, and then you were laughing, so I thought you were okay. <laughs> my shin is all bruised up, but she, I got her attention, you know? And that's that's all it means at the end of the day. You were in the game. I, like, every <laughs> every class is a new class. Like, And then the guy, there's like, you know the, the flavor of like, 
50 something white guys who are really into yoga. Mm-hmm. He was sitting next to me. Um, and I had my earbuds in because I was going to do like a second class in that, in that room. I had my earbuds in. I was laying on the mat listening to the Flophouse talk about cats because it's just really been occupying my world lately. Yes. And he like gave me one of these waves and I was like, sir, don't want to, don't want to talk to you. And he was like, you have a really beautiful practice. And it's like, I hated every second of it. And I was like, yeah, but he thought I was good at you. Like, yeah. it is gross of me. Never knowing, like, how to take a, a gross compliment is always yeah. interesting. I just to tell you, I have to do it. go pretty soon. Oh, my God. I completely <laughs> did not. Okay, yes. Um, yeah, let's wrap it up then. Okay. Can you? Okay, really quick. So uh, I have a group of friends who were very excited for me to meet you. And I said, hey, what should I ask Guy? And my one friend said, how long should men's shorts be? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, I'm a very good interviewer. I I believe that men's shorts should be no longer than the top of the kneecap. Um, No longer than the top of the kneecap. Yes. And can be and should be shorter than that. Like, um, I I like a short man's short. Uh I feel like uh, a man's short should be giving me some sense of the thigh structure. Uh Uh, And when you can have those that are like gently gripping the thigh, Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm, wonderful. mm -hmm. Um, But anything that goes past the top of the kneecap, which I'm sure I violate on occasion, but I think should be reserved for queer women or... (laughs) Yes, um, <laughs> it is their space and their work. Um, You're so respectful of queer women. I've always I, said that about you. <laughs> and I mean, once you get down to a point of like, I came out long enough ago that capris for men were a thing. Oh I think um, once we get fully past the knee at some thick, like basically, no, I'm going to say <laughs> then you have to move all the way down to the swell of the calf uh-huh, uh-huh, and uh-huh. they can come to the swell of the calf. Okay. Um, I personally, I just watched Jenny Slate's uh, comedy special. So good. And, but also was wearing silk palazzo pants. And I was just like, the way that everyone wore a leather suit in deference to Richard Pryor, <laughs> I want everyone to start wearing palazzo pants in their comedy special. A palazzo pant is such a bold choice to make. I mean, it was amazing. Oh, she was perfect in yes. that. Um, we, I... I need to not judge me for a second, but I was getting dinner at Hooters, sitting uh-huh. at the bar by myself, having a glass of wine, because yes. I know the, the bartender there. Yes. Not because we were friends prior, but I've yeah. gone to Hooters enough. You just love the wings? I love the wings. It's All my right. absolute guilty pleasure. My family goes there every Mother's Day. That's the sort of trash I'm working with. Okay. Um, but this bartender, I adore her, um, because after like a glass and a half of wine, she and I just yell about how much we hate white men, yes. which is, again, on brand for me. Yes. Her manager comes in behind the bar. He's wearing khaki shorts below the knee with a drawstring at the uh-huh. bottom of the short. Yeah. And I have been obsessed ever since. I don't know. Is it fashion? Is it practical? I mean, there are times when like... I'm sure a little pedal pushery thing. Like a woman I work with was wearing like a very like butchish, but also cute pedal pusher the other day. Uh-huh. And it was wonderful. Um, I just think that, um, you know, there's just a world of drooping shorts that make anyone look like Adam Sandler. I think that's a really good note to end on. Is there anything you'd like to uh, promote or plug? 
Oh, people should buy my book. My life is a goddess. Available wherever books are sold. The book is very good. Uh, and I don't know when this is going to come out, but I am going to be in Washington D.C. on May the thirtieth. I am oh, going. It will to- be out before May. <laughs> okay, I'm go. I'm working backwards. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, in February, I'm going to be in Bloomington, Indiana. And then a college in upstate New York. You're probably not going to come to a college in rural upstate New York. Where in upstate New York? Uh, I was just in Rochester this summer. It's Hamilton College. It's an hour outside of Syracuse. Wow. How'd you book that? That's so impressive. Uh, Agents. (laughs) And then um, I'm going to be in Vancouver for JFL. This may be up. Will it be up by the end of February? Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, Canadians. Come watch me. Uh, I'm going to be doing a show at JFL the last weekend of... um, February in Vancouver, and it will be fun. All right. Well, thank you so much. We can follow you at Guy Branham on Twitter. Yes. And Any I'm sorry other... we weren't able to go longer. I just... It's an hour. It is more than enough. Uh, like it, we, we went for a bottle of wine's worth. That's usually like my podcast limit. I mean, it's a good pregame. I can't, <laughs> I can't deny it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, we're back. Uh, we had an emergency that we had to record. Before leaving this podcast of all podcasts, I have to put down an official statement about the existence of God. Okay. Which is this. I identify as agnostic. I think that atheism is arrogant. <laughs> I think the world is full of mysteries. And being able to definitively say that we know where those mysteries come from is, as I said, arrogant. But I will reserve the right to deny the existence of God for purposes of flourish in my Passover Seder. Um, (laughs) Okay, but you can be an agnostic atheist. uh, That's true, but the thing is is that I don't actively think God doesn't exist. Okay. I like to say it for the purpose of jokes (laughs) in a religious function. I, um... I, do you know who Moshe Kasher is? Yes. He is a very funny comedian um, who is so Jewish. He uh, made his lovely wife make, but Natasha Legero uh, has converted and has fallen in love with Judaism. They're very Jewish. Um, But last year, no, year before last for my Passover Seder, I invited them over and they were like, oh, my brother David's going to be here. He's a rabbi. And I was like, have him come. And I like scandalized Rabbi David Kasher. Um... (laughs) With a couple of jokes Wait. about God not being real <laughs> in um, my Passover Haggadah. And he afterwards, like, emailed Moshe or messaged him or t- whatever and was like, you know, I realized, I, like, I, w- I was at something special there. And it was really <laughs> sweet. But I loved that I, like, did enough that it was strong drink for the rabbi. I really like that. I also got in a weird Twitter war with actor Hal Sparks. About what? How's one of the nicest people on the planet? He did not care for me and my brand. (laughs) Uh, Because he said, like, somebody was talking about, like, do you, would you elect an agnostic or atheist Uh as president or whatever? And he said, agnostic, yes, atheist, I would have a lot of questions for. I mean, the thing is, is the worst thing that's ever happened to your brand was Dawkins and Gervais, you know? Gervais needs to, like, get the fuck off our dick. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to, like, shoot myself. And I love the Golden Globes. Like, Yes. The, like, I get it, Ricky. Like, no, you don't care what anybody thinks. You uh, drink a beer on stage. Like, how uh, fucking rebellious. I, I respect atheism so much. Um, I just think that, like, 
I I can't be conclusive on that point. That's fine. Um, and I do like implying that atheists worship an all power all all power deity named Atheos. I think having <laughs> a small shrine to Atheos in your home should be an important tenet of atheism. Okay, can we um, design? something for atheists and that'll be my next tattoo yes <laughs> yes i think like he it. has an odd number of arms an um, odd as if un- as in unexpected or odd as in an odd number an odd number i do not want atheists to have an even number of arms okay i like it where'd the third one come from like i don't know i think it may be seven i maybe 13 <laughs> i don't know <laughs> all right well, well we'll get to the drawing board on this yes okay are you sure you're done this time yes any more proclamations that's it okay Thank bye you. <laughs>